Welcome to the Fix Your Watchers podcast, where I own Stefan. Our mission is to equip, encourage, and exhort individuals through apologetics, fellow prophecy, and discipleship while emphasizing the gospel message. Pray that you are blessed by today's episode. Greetings to everyone. Welcome to the West Coast Gospel Hour, a special presentation by Fig Tree Watchers as we go verse by verse through the expository study of the book of Ephesians. So invite your friends, invite your aunt, invite your grandpa. It's time to study this book of Ephesians. So please subscribe to the podcast and like and share. Welcome, everyone. This is an exciting new series that we are going through on the book of Ephesians. This will be, as I mentioned, a verse-by-verse expository study. This study uh, has been in preparation now for seven months. Unfortunately for you all, uh, the introduction alone is probably going to last at least 10 weeks. I uh, don't know how to make it any shorter, and that's just before we get even to the first verse. As you know, we took a month to uh, off to take a break, to leave Instagram, uh, to revamp the way we do things at Fig Tree Watchers. Unfortunately, uh, we have hit some snags. Uh, we've made some mistakes. We've struggled through some issues that we've been having, trying to do things better for our listeners. Um, but uh, we have come to the point where we need to get going to share the good news of Jesus Christ, and we feel that this is of the utmost of importance. So please take a, a special note um, today. Uh, with this podcast is a blog post that was posted on figtreewatchers.com. This is one of those introductory posts that is going to be a sidebar to this podcast, to this expository teaching, and we want you uh, to read it. Uh, The first post has been published, and it is entitled, Why Ephesus Lost Its Lampstand to Paganism and Violence. So strap yourself in, grab your Bible and some coffee, get a notebook, and let the Holy Spirit guide you to all truth as we begin this series on Ephesus. Cambridge Dictionary defines a miser as an individual who has a great desire to possess money and hates to spend it, sometimes living like a poor person because of the desire. One famous miser that we are familiar with throughout the world is Hetty Green. She was a uh, miser who died in 1916 uh, with an estimated value of $100 million. That's right. She died in 1916 with an estimated value of $100 million. Yet she lived as though she was impoverished. Her own son lost his leg to infection because she could not find a free clinic to take care of him. And today, many Christians act like misers. They do not understand the incredible spiritual wealth that comes with relying solely on the sufficiency of God. They have become spiritual misers, relying on religion, religious acts, churches, pastors, or even saints for their help instead of God. They far too often blame God for their situation instead of relying on God himself. And this covers a 
large spectrum, not just Catholicism, but also in Protestantism. Today, you have groups like Bethel, which have added uh, the mising of angel cards, which is nothing more than tarot cards, to their faith, or it's the word of faith mo movement. They've added this lingo that it's because you didn't believe, you didn't have enough faith that God didn't answer your prayer. But that's not what scripture says. It's a twisting of the scripture that takes place. So they often fail to recognize three important factors of the Christian life. The first one is they fail to recognize the spiritual blessings they have inherited because of their salvation in Jesus. Secondly, they fail to trust the Holy Spirit for their guidance in all aspects of their lives. And thirdly, they fail to fully grasp how deep and vast the love of their Heavenly Father truly is for them. That's right. They fail to understand how much God truly loves them. This brings us to the question Ephesus asks every believer. Can you as a saint made holy by the blood of Jesus live sufficiently under the blessing and provision of God while boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus with incorruptible love provided by the fruits of the Holy Spirit while residing in a hostile pagan world? This is a big question. It's a problematic question that we have to ask ourselves as believers in Jesus Christ. This is the dilemma that both the Christian of Ephesus and we, the readers of Ephesians, currently find ourselves pondering and confronting and agonizing over. To find the answer to this enigma, we need to believe that we have victory in Christ Jesus and live accordingly to that victory under the blessing provided by the Father through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Look, to understand our victory, we need to examine and study Ephesians. For throughout this book, it explains our victory in Jesus. It supersedes all things. And I mean all things. It explains our living inheritance and it grants us wisdom to sufficiently live in the eternal provisions of the Godhead. To begin with Ephesians, one needs to start with the city. To understand this book, you have to start with the city. It's basic, right? It's who the letter is written to, the Ephesians. Where are they living? In Ephesus. So we have to, in order to understand this book, we have to start very clearly with the city. The city of Ephesus was well known as a commercial trade center, but it was also a city of political importance and religious center that dominated Asia Minor. The city was originally founded by Amazons, a tribe of formidable female warriors, this according to legend. The name is derived from the word Apasas. Uh, this is the name of a city that existed in the Hittite period. The name means mother goddess. Now, when Paul comes to Ephesus, he comes there in 52 AD. And it is Paul who is writing the letter to the Ephesians. When he arrives there in 52 AD, 
just after staying in Corinth for a year and a half, he had travels to this city with his friends, Priscilla and Aquila. And this is considered part of what is called Paul's second uh, evangelistic or second missionary journey, depending on who you study as a theologian. Although they stay briefly, they managed to start the first Christian church in the city. And Paul, uh, he walks in absolute confidence in his salvation in Christ as he is going through this city in the few months that he is there. He walked according to the Spirit and he walked according to the will of God. In fact, Scripture makes this very clear and it tells us in Acts 18, 18-21, it says the following in the Scripture. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sanchera, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Here's that confidence that Paul has. In verse 20 it says, When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. This is all we have about the second missionary journey. And so what we learn from Paul uh, is our first point that we gain in understanding about how to live in the victory of Christ and how to trust sufficiently in the Godhead, the Trinity, how we can live sufficiently in the Godhead that is given to us as believers, who God is. How do we live sufficiently in that? I know I'm emphasizing sufficiently, but I want you to understand it. Every Christian today really needs to grasp this concept. It's the sufficiency of God, the Godhead in the life of the believer, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe in one God, the three persons of God. But it is in this triune Godhead that we as Christians must live sufficiently in. Nothing else should be added to our faith. This is it. We need a loving Father who loves us. We need to trust the Holy Spirit who guides us to all truth, as the Gospel of John tells us. And we need Jesus for our salvation. So Paul trusted in this Godhead. He trusted in the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit to guide him. He trusted in the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross as his salvation. And he trusted sufficiently in the love of God the Father. He trusted in God's timing and the foreknowledge of God. By being prepared in Scripture and engaging in prayer and being accountable to those he fellowshiped with Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and Timothy and all the people that surrounded him in his missionary journeys to Ephesus. When Paul entered into the city for the first time, you've got to imagine what it was like. This was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome was the largest city. 
But this one was the second largest. It was the premier city of Asia Minor's western region known as the Proconsular of Asia. The Roman Empire considered it a second capital city. It was heavily Greek in origin. In fact, it was considered the capital of economics for the Roman Empire. And when we talk about Asia Minor, we're not talking about Asia like China and Japan, that's part of it. Back in that day, Turkey was considered Asia Minor. It had the largest outdoor theater in the world of its time, was built in Ephesus. It could hold uh, between 25,000 and 40,000 people, depending on who you read as a scholar um, on archaeology. All sorts of gladiator sports events were held here. Um, anything that was animal versus animal, person versus animal, I mean, everything imaginable imaginable was held at this theater. In the first century BC, the city had a population of more than 250,000 people, making Ephesus the second most populated city in the known world. By the time uh, Paul had arrived, its population was even larger in size. Only Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, had a larger population than Ephesus. Ephesus also contained one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the massive temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana, Sybil, Ishtar, and Isis, right? Because if you read the posts that I asked you to read at the beginning of this podcast, uh, you will come to find out that these are all the same gods, essentially, goddesses, essentially, but they're just different names based on the region they're from. Ishtar from Babylon, um, Isis from Egypt, and even Artemis came out of Sybil. Sybil was known as the goddess of the Holy Roman Empire, right? The goddess of the Roman Empire. And... Um, and this is real important because you have to understand this affected the whole culture of the Roman Empire. Uh, and long after uh, Christianity became established, it still had its roots based in this. And so uh, the temple of Artemis uh, was, like I mentioned, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was magnificent. And... The Temple of Artemis um, was took 220 years in the building. Uh, it was 418 feet by 239 feet by 127 um, 56-foot columns. It was four times larger than the Pantheon that stood uh, until 262 AD when it was finally ruined by the Goths. So this thing was gigantic in size, um, massive. Um, square footage on this thing and like I said it was four times larger than the Pantheon that's amazing when you think about it right and then that aspect of it this temple to Artemis Artemis was um, known as um, the mother of gods the great mother Magna Marte was some of the names 
it was in this mother of God cult that Paul recognized with horror an old nemesis of Israel, the queen of heaven. As a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, Paul knew who Artemis clearly was. She was the same goddess under a different name that had deceived Israel and seduced his people into idolatry. I want you to imagine this for a moment, right? You're Paul, you're coming to the city of Ephesus, and you see this incredible mother of God cult throughout Ephesus going on. And you know the history of this. You know about Sybil. You know how it, this Sybil goddess evolved into Artemis and eventually Diana. You know what it represents. And you know for a fact of how it led Israel astray. You remember the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And this was an incredible moment for Paul because he's confronted by the past sins of Israel as he's ready to begin a church plant on his second missionary journey. He's reminded of the entrapment and the deception that's involved here. And he realizes all of a sudden, wait a moment, this is a spiritual war I'm in, a serious one. Here is the second point that we can learn from Paul on living victorious in Jesus. The Holy Spirit guides the believer who is fully surrendered through the pitfalls of his enemy. Paul knew that if he trusted the Holy Spirit, no matter what took place in the city of Ephesus, the Holy Spirit was going to guide him through those pitfalls. Paul learns the sin failures of Israel and he recognizes the traps that he's about to face. He remembers the sins of Israel in relation to paganism and idolatry and he's aware of what's coming. He is ready to do battle. Look, Satan always sticks to the playbook. He's got a playbook. He's written it. He's the master of his own playbook. It's the same old gimmicks, just new faces, new names, reimagined. It's the same thing. Think about this. In today's world, we have the World Economic Forum, right? Under Krauss Schwab. It's giving this idea today of what we call the fourth industrial revolution. Well, it's nothing more than a reimagined Fourth Reich from Krauss Schwab. Or you have what Hitler had as eugenics, Krauss Schwab is describing as transhumanism. Just renamed, same thing, redone, just same old gimmick, just a new name or a new face to it. This time, instead of Hitler, it's Krauss Schwab. We've got to be aware of these kind of deceptions that are going on in the world. To give you a little bit more understanding of why this queen of heaven was so dangerous in the mind of Paul, let's look at Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, do not pray for this people. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. Nor lift up a 
cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out a drink offering to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Another passage that goes along with this later on is, um, we're going to read is Jeremiah 44, uh, 15 to 25. Because count the number of times as you're reading that in your personal devotion time, how many times the queen of heaven comes out in this phase. And then I want you to think about something very important as, as you're doing that. Write down this phrase, the queen of heaven. And as you're reading the post from Fig Tree Watchers on this, put this in the back of your mind and think about what Paul is seeing here as a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, an Israeli, right? From the nation of Israel, right? Who knows God, who understands the deception that this queen of heaven did to his people during the time of Jeremiah and the wrath that Israel had to face because of it. And then think about what's going on today with paganism. You see, in ancient Israel, the people abandoned the God of Israel for the goddess worship. They revered her titles of worship with such terms as the virgin, the holy virgin, the virgin mother, the goddess of goddesses, the queen of heaven, and earth and Ishtar was evolved into the Egyptian goddess Isis which was modeled for the uh, Grecian uh, Aphrodite uh, Roman Diana uh, the Assyrian Nina the filigree and Roman Sibyl and the Phoenician Astarte which evolved into Artemis the goddess of Ephesus in essence they were the same mother goddess different cultures with different names but essentially the same and paul understood this the people of israel had taken the wood offering that was meant for the glory of god and they turned it into something despicable in leviticus 6 12 and nehemiah 10 35 that which was commanded by god they turned it into an abomination for the mother of gods. The wood offering was meant to point out our self-death and picking up our cross for Jesus in the Old Testament. It was pointing to that. Israel had taken what was holy and twisted it into a rebellious defilement of God. They even took the manna, which represented Christ, the bread of life, and distorted it into cakes for their goddesses. Think about the holy rituals that they took, they distorted, they abused, and they created abominations of it. And God said, I hate this. I hate this. And then they led the children astray. They let the children participate in this paganism view, as we read in Jeremiah. The children gather the wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead the dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. That's from Jeremiah chapter 7. So, Paul knew, 
he had entered into a battlefield. The spiritual war of a lifetime. It was here in Ephesus that we can begin to understand Paul's thinking and dependency on God in the midst of warfare. Paul understood that there could be no compromise. The rabbi in Paul <clears throat> remembered the words of the Torah. Paul, and this is the third point, Paul did not compromise his biblical imperatives. He refused to. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispose, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I will also do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in their fire to their gods. What he's saying here in Deuteronomy 12, 29-32 is, don't take the abominations that they do and bring them over into the practice with me. I don't want to see them. I hate them. They're an abomination to me. Don't do that. That's what God is saying very clearly. Listen, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. He tells you, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Don't do it. Stop it. It's not good. It's not what honors me. The imperatives that God instructs us to live by are always based on love. The Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment. So what is Paul learning from Deuteronomy, the rabbi? Several things. Number one, be separate. Separate yourselves out through holy concentrate, consecration before the Lord. I almost said concentration. Consecration before the Lord, right? Be separate. Destroy and dispose of all idolatry in your life. Get rid of it. All of it. Don't keep any of it. Don't keep yoga practices. Don't keep charms. Don't keep crystals. Get rid of it all. Get rid of every abomination because it is ungodly to God. He hates it. Do not be ensnared to follow them in any form or manner. Read 1 Timothy 4, 1, 2, 3. It gives you a clear definition of how you're to behave. Do not inquire after the practices or worships of the false gods. Do not add their abominations into your worship of the living God. Paul understood these imperatives from Scripture. Nothing in his Pharisee tradition of purity and the law prepared him for this. Nothing would have. But God did through the Holy Spirit. His reliance on the triune God had to be absolute. He needed the authority of God the Father, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and the covering of the blood of Jesus to enter into this battlefield. 
It was here that Paul knew where his real struggle was with. It was not with humanity. It wasn't with those who do evil. But it was with the forces of evil, of wickedness in the high places. It was aerial in the principalities of heaven and it was terrestrial, battling the demons on the earth. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 12-13, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. It was here that Paul understood not to rely on self, but on God, for the weapons of man were futile. But Paul had to be in Christ Jesus. Nothing else mattered. No human weapon would work. No amount of anger or rage would assist him. Paul had to embody the wonder workings of God. He had to be mighty in God and leave everything else behind him. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 tells us this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In Christ Jesus, he had to rely. In the Holy Spirit, he had to rely. In the God, the Father, he had to rely. The triune Godhead, for his love, for his comfort, for his mercy, for his guidance to truth, for his wisdom, and for his salvation. We are living in a pagan world. And in these end times that we live in, paganism is all around us. Are you prepared? One needs to ask the question, how is paganism influencing your life and the health of your church? Are you um, defiling your relationship with God through pagan practices that God hates? Listen to the writings of the Catholic Encyclopedia regarding Easter eggs and the rabbit. Regarding the Easter egg, it states this, the symbolic meaning of a new creation of mankind by Jesus risen from the dead was probably an invention of later times. The custom may have its origin in paganism. For a great many pagan customs celebrating the return of spring gravitate towards Easter. The egg is the emblem of the germinating life of early spring. This is by um, Easter by Herbert Thurston of the Catholic Encyclopedia, 1913 edition, volume 5. Later on, <clears throat> the Easter uh, rabbit, on the Easter rabbit, it states this. The Easter rabbit lays the egg for which reason they are hidden in the nest or in the garden. The rabbit is a pagan symbol and has always been an emblem of fertility in paganism. That's the Simrock mythology, uh, number 551. But he continues to say this. This is a problem for the church and the believer. We're condoning practices that are pagan and then 
defending them with the excuse that God hates. Actually, I, that's my quote there. And this is a big problem for the church. For the Christian believer, we cannot afford to add to our faith paganism in any form. Jeremiah 10.2 tells us, do not learn the ways of the Gentiles. Paul warns us as Christians to take heed. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has the righteous with the lawless? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That's from 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18. Look, this is the clearest condemnation in Scripture. Not to yoke yourself with pagan practices, symbols, traditions, and celebrations. We want God to bring revival but we don't listen as a church. We have ears to hear, but our hearts are stubborn. We must be in Christ alone, separate from the word, world and its practices. We cannot commune with darkness. We are to not touch or engage in any aspect of paganism. But we're failing to do that. And what accord is Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of God. Do you believe that you're the temple of God? Do you believe that you have a victorious life in Jesus Christ? Why then do so many believers add pagan practices to their faith in Jesus? It's not just Catholicism. Bethel does this, as I mentioned. It's throughout Protestantism. Angel card readings, the word of faith movement, charms, uh, crystals. It's running amok. They have added these angel cards to their faith and justified by the traditions of the Catholic Church. They add the word of faith doctrine and are ironically believe that they are the one true church in advancing the kingdom now theology. This is heresy, and it has, absolutely has to stop. But it has to stop with the believer. The believer has to understand, I'm in Christ, in Christ alone, through faith alone, by God's grace alone. I'm not going to defile my temple. I'm going to be ready for the battlefield, as Paul was when he entered that city on the second missionary journey, saying, today, I'm going to bound myself in prayer. I'm going to bound myself in the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit guide me to all truth. I'm going to know the word of God and its power. I will not waver. I will not compromise. I will be set apart. That's what we needed to learn from Paul in this introduction. Part one of Ephesians. Dear God, I just pray that you would bless those who are listening. 
to him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. May you guide them to all truth, God. May the believer understand, and may they separate themselves out from paganism in these end times. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us here on Fig Tree Watchers as we finished part one of our introduction into the book of Ephesians. Join us next week as we begin part two.